0: We will be looking tonight at Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. Article 16, which you find on page 60 in the three forms of unity that we use. That article is entitled Eternal Election. We believe that all the posterity of Adam being thus fallen into perdition and ruined by the sin of our first parents... God then did manifest himself such as he is, that is to say, merciful and just. Merciful, since he delivers and preserves from this perdition all whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere goodness, has elected in Christ Jesus our Lord, without any respect to their works, just in leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, with this uh, 16th article of the Confession, we've come to the fourth section of the Belgic Confession. We've considered already the doctrine of Scripture as it's found in Articles 2 to 7 of the Confession, the doctrine of God or of theology in Articles 1. And 8 to 11, and the doctrine of man or anthropology in articles 12 to 15. With article 16, we come to the longest part of the confession, articles 16 to 26, and these articles deal with the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And also, in part, anyway, with the doctrine of Christ, uh, Christology. The doctrine of Christ, especially in Articles 18, 19, and 26. It's very striking that the confession begins the discussion of the doctrine of salvation with the doctrine of election. If you look in the dogmatics book, you will find that this doctrine of election is usually treated under theology, that the doctrine of God. And there are various divisions in that doctrine of God, and one of those divisions in the doctrine of God will be the works of God. And then you will see the works of God within himself, ad intra, and the works of God outside of himself, ad extra. And election is treated as one of the works of God, ad intra, But it's very fitting also to treat the doctrine of election under the doctrine of salvation, because election is the beginning of our salvation. It is the foundation uh, on which everything else is built, or it is the root from which everything else springs. Our regeneration, our sanctification, our glorification, our justification Everything that God gives to us in our Lord Jesus Christ begins with this uh, work, this decree of God, which we call, and the scriptures call, election. Grace then, the grace of God to us, began already in eternity, before the worlds were formed, and before we were born. And our salvation Is rooted in the eternal and unchangeable counsel of God Himself. We should notice also that the article treats not just of election, but also of reprobation in the second and the last two lines of the article. So we'll be talking not just about election this afternoon, but also about reprobation or what is known as double predestination. There are really three things then that the article talks about. Election, of course, it's the main subject. Reprobation is a secondary subject, but both of these are treated under the general idea that God, in these things, manifests himself. God then did manifest himself such as he is. That is to say, Merciful and just. Merciful in election, just in reprobation. So we're going to look at those three parts of the article. God's manifestation of himself in these things. Then the idea of election. And finally, the idea of reprobation. Notice how the article phrases this first part. We believe that all the posterity of Adam, being thus fallen into perdition and ruined by the sin of our first parents, God then did manifest himself such as he is. So what we have first of all, of course, is God revealing himself in his work of creation. Revealing himself as a very great God, revealing himself as a very powerful God, one who is able to create all things from nothing. And uh, creating man within that creation so that man could be his servant and so that man could, as head of his creation, bring all the creation into his service and glorify him in his position. God intended that the creation be to his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night shows knowledge. But Adam and Eve, of course, fell into sin and brought the whole human race into perdition and ruin. We talked about that, of course, in Articles 14 and 15 in the Confession. And God's response to that was to make a further revelation of himself. He could have, of course, simply terminated everything at that point. He could have annihilated the creation at that point along with us. He could have said, this whole thing is wrecked and ruined now by man's fall into sin. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm going to be done. He could justly have destroyed the whole business. But instead, God determined to continue the revelation of himself and to continue that revelation of himself by making a new creation. And immediately after the fall, he began the work of remaking or of making, again, a creation. And this creation, a better and more glorious creation than the first. He had already revealed himself as creator and Lord, as glorious, as powerful, but now he determined, as our confession says, to reveal himself as a God of mercy and of justice. He did not immediately destroy Adam, as Adam deserved. He did not even abandon Adam to live a life of misery under the bondage of sin, as he had told him would happen to him if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he went about to bring something new and better out of the wreck we had made of his creation. But, We should also recognize that this was his eternal purpose. That God did not intend with the original creation to finish his work. And that then his work of redeeming and making a new creation was something that he was driven to because of Adam's fall into sin. That God did not anticipate this. And that God had to, therefore, make new plans quickly to overcome what Adam and Eve had wrecked. Instead, God had determined all this from the found- before the foundation of the world. The, new, the first creation, Adam's fall as well, and the redemption of the whole creation and of Adam and Eve and some of their seed for the new creation. And in this new creation then, he reveals himself as even more glorious than we can ever know him to be from his first creation. He shows himself to be a greater God than we can know him to be from simply the work of the first creation. This new work is a work which reveals more of his character, more of his power more of his glory reveals especially his justice and his mercy as the confession says but notice notice how the confession puts this it's very important he reveals himself as both a just and a merciful god but he does this these two things revealing himself as just and merciful in relation to two different groups of people. He reveals himself as merciful to one group, and he reveals himself as just to another group. So the Confession takes this doctrine of predestination, double predestination, and puts it in the context of God's self-revelation, of God's determination to glorify himself, and says that he had a purpose in all of this. And his purpose was to reveal himself so that men would respond to that revelation of himself by glorifying him and exalting him and honoring him and thanking him and praising him for his mighty works. God is manifesting himself then in this work of predestination. That brings us then to the doctrine of election. Now, just to get us started on that doctrine of election, let's uh, give a brief definition of it. Election is God's eternal decree to save out of the fallen human race some particular persons and to bring them to glory in Christ. God's election is his eternal decree to save some particular persons out of the fallen human race and to bring them to glory in Christ. It is an eternal decree of God, and as an eternal decree of God, it is, of course, an unchangeable decree, as all his decrees are unchangeable the elect will be saved they will come to christ not one of them will be lost no one is able to pluck them out of the father's hand the lord the father gave them to his son as john says many times in his gospel he gave them to his son the son received them as his own the Son laid down his life for them, they will certainly, therefore, be saved. And so the certainty of our salvation, that certainty which we have today of our salvation, is rooted not only in the promises of God, which are unchangeable, not only in our knowledge of the power of God, so that we know that he can accomplish what he has promised, not only in the justice of God as
1: revealed
0: in our Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering on our behalf, but that certainty of salvation is rooted also in the eternal and unchangeable decree of God, which we call election. He chose us, and he chose us by an unchangeable decree. As, and this is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1, make your calling and election sure. Because it is in election that we find that certainty that God has chosen us to be his own from eternity in his own unchangeable and eternal counsel. So that's the first thing that we want to see. That this is an unchangeable decree of God. The second thing that we want to see, and that's in this article as well, is that we are chosen in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I think that's very important, perhaps more important than we sometimes realize. If you turn to chapter 1 of Ephesians verse 4, you find this stated specifically. Paul there says, just as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now we're very used to that language, but If you start thinking about what that language means and you start looking at what the scriptures say about this whole idea of chosen in Christ. What we find first of all is that he is the chosen one. He is the elect one of God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Here is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the uh, servant, and it's very clear in that verse that that servant is our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And then it goes on to describe that work of salvation which this servant, the elect one, is going to do among the Gentiles. Christ is the chosen one. And when we are chosen, we are chosen in Him. We are chosen to be in Him. God chose Him as the elect and then He chose those who would be the members of His body. He chose then not just a group of individuals to stand before him as a group of individuals, but he chose Christ and he chose some to be in Christ. He chose the body of Christ and the members, the individual members of the body of Christ. And so it's said of him in Revelation 13 verse 8 that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was slain already in the council of God slain for all his elect. And in Romans 8, verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because Christ is the chosen one, our Christ, our Savior, whom God sent into the world for us. Because we are chosen in him, Our salvation is sure. Another thing that the article says about this doctrine of election is that God chose without respect to works. Now, about 50 years after the confession was written, the Arminians arose and began to teach an election according to works. That is... They said God had knowledge of the whole human race in its sinfulness. And God was able to see in the human race, the fallen human race, those who would believe in him, and he chose them. So by his foreknowledge of all things, God was able to anticipate who would believe, and he chose them. He chose them, therefore, based on foreseeing faith, as we put it today. He chose them based on what they would do. But, of course, that reverses the scriptural order. We were not chosen because of faith. We were chosen unto faith faith. What the confession means then when it says that he chose without respect to their works is that he did not look among men to see who was different, who was better than others, who was more willing to receive him, who would uh, be the best candidates for his electing work. This was not like a a manager who's trying to hire somebody for a position and reviewing the qualifications of all the different candidates and trying to choose out of all these different candidates the one who's best qualified. That's not the way God worked. He didn't have regard to the works. He didn't have regard to qualifications in us. As as far as we are concerned, we're all the same in His sight. We're all sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, equally worthy of damnation. There are no best candidates. There are, from the perspective of the human race, no candidates at all. None who can't even aspire to be chosen by him. He does not look to see who will believe. He chooses, the Apostle Paul says, And again in Ephesians 1, according to his good pleasure. And if you ask, why did he choose me rather than another? Well, the scriptures say, because he loved you. And if you ask, well, why did he love me rather than another? The scriptures don't give us any answer. Certainly not, because I was more lovable than any other. Certainly not because I was even lovable. I was not. It all comes down to his own sovereign good pleasure, not with respect to works. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, verse 16 one of the reasons, not the only reason, why I chose to read that passage tonight. Romans 9, verse 16. The apostle says this, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It is not of him who wills. It is not of him who runs. Willing is, of course, what the Arminians would say. And running is according to works. It's not of our will, nor of our works, but of God, who shows mercy. And that's a very important part of the doctrine of election because it takes away from us our pride. We cannot say, I did something. Somehow, in some way, I set myself apart from everybody else. Somehow, I called God's attention to myself as one worthy of his attention, worthy of a second look. God said to Israel, I did not choose you because you were more in number or greater than any of the nations around you. I chose you because I loved you. And that's what his election is all about, too. There is no reason for pride in it. Because there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the eternal decree of God that distinguished us from any other person. We are equally worthy of damnation with all other men. It is sheer mercy, altogether grapes, completely unmerited. It has nothing to do with us. Do not boast as if you had chosen him rather than he choosing you. In this same connection about the election being unconditional, not rooted in works. I want to address another aspect of this whole teaching, which has arisen since the time of our confession, and that is that there have been attempts in more recent years to explain away the doctrine of election in saying that it pertains only to the nation of Israel. It's not an election of individuals. It was the choice of a nation And I suppose that then these people would also say, well, that pertains also to the church, that God chose the church in general, but not the individuals who belong to the church. Now, it is true that the scriptures speak of the election of Israel as a nation. We've already quoted Deuteronomy 7, and if you turn to that passage for a moment, you can see that God is talking there about choosing Israel as a nation. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He chose Israel over all the nations of the earth. But you can't stop there. Yes, he chose Israel, but what's the significance of that? What do the scriptures say further about that whole subject? That's the important point. First of all, notice that the scriptures speak of the choice of individuals as well. In Nehemiah 9 verse 7, for example, Nehemiah says God chose Abraham, an individual. Out of all the possible men on the face of the earth at that time, God chose Abraham. In Psalm 65, the psalm says, blessed is he whom you have chosen. To come into your house, he's talking about those individuals whom God has chosen to come into His house. But think about the history of Israel. God chose not only Abraham out of all possible men at His time, but He chose Isaac out of Abraham's children. He did not choose Ishmael. And of Jacob's children, he sho- uh, um, of Isaac's children, he chose Jacob and not Esau. But also this, people of God, that God chose Israel means, according to the scriptural teaching, that ultimately he chose those elect individuals within Israel. He did not choose even all Israel. They are not all Israel, Paul says in Romans 9, who are of Israel, but the seed of the promise is counted for the seed. Israel as a nation is a type, a symbol, an earthly and imperfect symbol of the spiritual Israel. And who belongs to spiritual Israel Those elect individuals whom God has chosen from the foundation of the world. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. He is not circumcised who is circumcised in the flesh, but he is circumcised who is circumcised in the heart. Jew and Gentile, those whom God has chosen, they are the true Israel, of whom that earthly Israel is only a type. Paul talks about this also in Romans chapter 11, verse 5. Romans 11, verse 5. This whole section in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 is about this big question. Well, what has happened to God's promises? God has rejected the Jews now. What has happened to his promises to all the Jews? And the first answer Paul gives is in Romans 9, the first few verses. And he says, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. That was never God's intention from the very beginning was never God's intention. And here in Romans 11, he says this. He he asks the same question again. In the first few verses of that chapter, I say then, has God cast away his people? Has he uh, given up on the chosen people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, look, here's proof that God has not given up on Israel. I am... An Israelite, just one example out of the many thousands of Israelites alive in his own day. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, and that's a reference to predestination. He has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant according to the election of grace. That remnant is the true Israel. God's election is of individuals. The final thing that we want to notice then about this election is that the confession says it is unto deliverance and preservation from perdition. It is election unto salvation. And this too the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. When he says this, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, predestined unto adoption. That brings us then. In the second in the third place to the doctrine of reprobation. And here we have to speak very carefully. This is a hard doctrine, difficult for us to accept, and it becomes more difficult as we look into the scriptural language concerning it. We must recognize that from the very beginning. The first thing we may say is that reprobation is the counterpart or corollary of election. That is, if God chose some out of the fallen human race, he did not choose all. It is of necessity implied that some are rejected. In the second place, we should notice the language which our confession uses. He left others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. That is, if you take this language and as it stands, God had the whole human race before him in his eternal counsel, before his mind. And he chose some out of that race to be his, to give to Christ, to bring to glory. And he left others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. You can, using that language, conceive of reprobation as being entirely (laughs) passive. God did not choose all but he did not actively reject any. It was just that he did not choose all. And some were left in their fall and perdition. And that language is acceptable language. I don't have a problem with that language. But we do have to recognize, people of God, that the scriptures use a stronger language than that. We should look first, I think, at 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which also they were appointed. They were appointed to stumble and to be disobedient. There is an active decree of reprobation as well as an active decree of election. His reprobation is also one of his decrees. And I think you can see that also in Romans chapter 9 verse 13. We're going to be spending now some time here in Romans 9 as we look at the subject of reprobation, because this is a very important passage in that regard. But there God says, or Paul records God's words to Rebecca, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Esau, I have hated. Now I've heard that explained as meaning simply that God loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. But if you go back to the passage from which Paul is quoting, which is found in Malachi 1, and you look at what that then, if we're to explain it that way, that lesser love of God for Esau did, I think you see the problem with it. God says in Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say in what way have you loved us? And he's talking to Israel, of course, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. So, this is what the lesser love of God for Esau did for him. It laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. And when Esau said, I'll rebuild, the Lord said, You may build, but I will throw down. You're going to be called the territory of wickedness. You're going to be called the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. hated Esau and if we go back to Romans 9 again we find that he did not even hate Esau because of his sins look what it says in Romans 9 Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Before the children were born, before they had done either good or evil, God said those words. His reprobation was also without regard to their works. And in verses 15 and following, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. This is still Romans 9. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That is, I will show my mercy to those I want to show my mercy to. And I will not show my mercy to those I don't want to show my mercy to. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy... On whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Whom he wills, he hardens. He did it to Pharaoh, and he said he did it to to Pharaoh to show his power in him, and to make his name be declared in all the earth. That's very sobering language, and language which I think we have to say we find it difficult to accept. In fact, so difficult that Paul himself anticipates our objections. In verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? He hardened Pharaoh. That's why Pharaoh refused to let the people of Israel go. Why does he still find fault with Pharaoh? Who has resisted his will? What's Paul's answer? But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Notice how how Paul again teaches us the unconditionality of both election and reprobation. There's one lump of clay uniform throughout the fallen human race. Every man is part of that lump of clay. And God takes bits of that clay, that undiscriminated, uniform lump of clay, he takes bits out of it and he makes a vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor. He makes one vessel... To show his wrath and to make his power known, verse 22.
1: And he endures
0: with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he fills other vessels, the vessels of honor, with the riches of his glory, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He has a right to do what he wills with his own. That's what Romans 9 says. He's the potter, and we are the clay, and he has the right to do what he wills with his own. And we're not in a position to question him. Who are you, O oh man, to reply against God? Will you bring charges of injustice against him? Will you, part of that miserable lump of clay, bring charges against the potter and say, you don't have a right to do with me as you have done? Now one of us has that kind of Authority, that kind of power. And we'd better not have that kind of temerity. Let's remember, too, that He's not obligated to save any single individual, not even one. He could justly have left every one of us in the ruin. And mer- misery into which we brought ourselves. It is sheer mercy, sheer grace, altogether unmerited, that He has chosen some out of this fallen human race, so that He may reveal to us the riches of His glory and His mercy. He has left others in the misery in which they have involved themselves, so that He may reveal the power of his wrath, and the glory and greatness of his name, so that he may reveal himself to be the sovereign God, the potter, who has the right to do what he wills with his own. And so, people of God, this doctrine of election ought not only to humble us, You were just part of that lump of clay from which he chose to make of you a vessel unto honor. You were not fit in any way to be a vessel made to honor. You were not clay suitable to make vessels to honor. The only vessels that could possibly come out of that lump of clay, apart from the grace of God, are vessels to dishonor. Vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy, has chosen you to be his. Do not exalt yourselves. Do not say, I am a child of Abraham, as the Jews said. Do not say, I distinguished myself. You did not. He set you apart as his and gave you to Christ. That's the foundation of your salvation. The undeserved mercy of God. And the purpose of that undeserved mercy of God is that you make Glorify him. One more passage. Ephesians 1 verse 6. Ephesians 1 verse 6. Beginning in verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. All things are of God, and we are his because of his work, not ours. May God bless us with his word.